Welcome to Mending Fences, a podcast about effective ways to communicate and live with differences. I'm Patrice Bremner. And I'm Jen Hawthorne. We're both family law mediators and collaborative law attorneys, but our conversations go well beyond family law. We explore the personal, interpersonal, legal, and cultural impact of conflict. Hi, and welcome back to Mending Fences. This is Patrice Bremner, and I'm here with Jen Hawthorne. Hi, Patrice. Hi, hi Jen. We have a special guest today. Our colleague and friend, Susan DiMatteo, is joining us. Susan is a practicing mediator and collaborative law attorney practicing in family law in Reading, Massachusetts. And we've asked Susan to come and talk with us today about her journey through family law as a practice, as a litigator, and into dispute resolution, and what that's meant for her practice and her life over the years. So Susan, why don't you start us off with just a little bit about how you got into family law in the first place? Sure. And first, I want to thank both of you for inviting me today. I'm really delighted to be here and to have this conversation with you. We're glad Um, you're here. (laughs) My background's a little different. I started out in healthcare, specifically in dental hygiene and education before I went to law school. So I came from a very different place. Right after law school, I started practicing corporate healthcare law and, you know, was going down a whole different path. And then it kind of life got in the way. My children were in elementary school, things got busier and busier, and I really didn't want to be commuting into the city anymore. So I decided to open up a family law practice in the suburbs, you know, something I sort of had in the back of my mind for a long time. But in doing that, I opened up what was the traditional family law practice. I was a litigator. You know, and I started representing divorcing couples in litigation. I did a lot of trial work and child custody cases, which were really tough, challenging types of things. And then I knew I wanted to make a transition. I I knew that this this couldn't be the best way to do it. I was really fortunate. I was one of the very first groups that were trained in collaborative law here in Massachusetts. It was back in 2001. There were no cases at the time, you know, because it was brand new practitioners. It was the second training. So it was something that I knew that once I had gone to that training, it's how I wanted to practice. But it took a while to build up. So I'm really curious, how did you first hear about collaborative practice? It actually was a, a continuing education brochure. The Massachusetts continue, you know, MCLE, which everybody knows about here that, that does an awful lot of, of legal continuing education, had a one-day course. So I figured this sounds like a good idea and just kind of out of the blue, hadn't talked to anybody about it. But it was my sticking my toe in the water and, and starting to get into this kind of practice. I then took mediation training. I had not done that first. But, yeah, I know, did it in I, that order too. I did collaborative first and then mediation, which I, I think did it is, in the opposite order. I think that's more common, Jen, that, that people tend to be mediators first and, and know about a dispute resolution method that, you know, something's a little different, but maybe not. I found out about both right around the same time. And when I asked um, some of our colleagues, which I should do first, they said, whichever one is available first, it doesn't okay. matter. So mine was sort of just how it happened, not intentional at all. I had this idea that I didn't want to mediate because I wasn't sure if I could be comfortable as a neutral. And I was drawn to collaborative because I could still be an advocate. And I had a background as litigator and um, appellate counsel. And I didn't know. I was 
unclear about how I would do as a neutral. And now I really like it. I actually remember having a conversation with you during our very first collaborative case, like many years ago, where you were telling me that. And I remember saying like, I don't think that's true. I think you'd be great as a neutral. But I think for, from Patrice's perspective, it probably, it makes sense because if you're representing someone, now you're just representing someone in a little bit different way, you know, yeah. a different and a different process. So I, I found a bigger transition to be a mediator that I felt as though I had to sit on my hands and that I couldn't be giving that advice, that I was giving them only information and staying neutral and staying in my lane, that, that I just thought it was a bigger challenge. Yeah, I think I benefited a lot from, before I became a mediator, I think I really benefited from watching collaborative cases and watching the person in the coach role do that facilitation. And it kind of gave me a sense of what, of how that could work and that it could work. I was skeptical of mediation because as a litigator, I only saw cases that had failed. I think that's a common sentiment among many litigators, not all, but there are many out there who don't think this really works. I mean, that's even what I tell clients, right? Like when they're, when we were talking about getting their agreements approved, I remind them that most judges were litigators in their pre-judge, um, in their prejudicial life. And so they are accustomed to both as a practicing attorney and certainly as a judge, seeing those cases that end up in court over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And when they're reviewing mediating agreements, very often what's in their head is, well, how is this going to end up in court again? What is it going to mean when it comes back? And so that's really what we're trying to address because it is so hard for so many people who practice in this world to believe that people can have a one and done agreement and never need intervention again. So back to your journey, Susan, when you did that training, and and I think I heard you say there weren't really a lot of collaborative cases at the time, was the model in Massachusetts the same as it is now with a coach and two attorneys? It was not. And it was just strictly attorney to attorney. It was evolving. I think it was, I don't even know how many years later that we brought in an expert from another part of the country to do a two or three day workshop on using coach facilitators and how that would work. I think one thing that was really important to me was staying involved in this organization. You know, that this community of of fellow practitioners who wanted to practice collaboratively, we've had fabulous continuing education programs over the years that have really helped develop the practice. And we've, through trial and error, in all of the cases that we do have now, really perfected a lot of our methods and the way that we approach the cases and we prepare for them. That's really interesting. And maybe that's a conversation for another day, Jen. We should, um, that the history of collaborative law in different parts of the country, it evolved in different ways in different regions. And I love this idea that, and you're talking about the Massachusetts Collaborative Law Council, right. um, who has put on continuing education events and provided professional development and networking for these 20-something years. Yeah, people had to reach out to other parts of the country to find out how does this work. But I really am curious, did you have cases without coaches early in your collaborative career? I did. I I did. I had quite a few of them. And I think it depended upon the other attorney. You know, that if we both had had this sort of paradigm shift and we had this mentality that we were going to do it in this way, we had to take on different roles. I mean, we had to watch not only in the meeting what was going on and trying to pay attention to the details, but we had to make sure that the the divorcing couple were being heard and that sort of all kind of watched out for it. But it was more challenging. I think it, it works much better when you have a coach facilitator there. 
who can yeah. orchestrate and yeah. people before. I mean, I want to know what what I shouldn't say to the other other side. I think that you know we all know in a collaborative meeting, most of the talking is being done by the parties, which is so different than it's done in in litigated cases. That was another big change for me. But to have that coach who can talk to these parties in advance, and we know that a certain topic may be really difficult. I'd rather know that in advance so that I don't broach a topic and put somebody in an uncomfortable situation unknowingly in a meeting. I think that facilitation helps. So what did the conversation, so we know that now our model is that there is a coach who has those conversations and we're pre-briefing as a team where the coach is sharing that information. Did you have pre-briefs when it was just two attorneys? Informal. You know, there really wasn't the process that we have it now. I mean, it was much more general types of terms. We knew that we wanted this philosophical change in how we approach things, that we weren't throwing swords across the table, that we were trying to have a constructive, respectful conversation. But I I often did have those conversations with attorneys that there weren't as many of us then either, um, but that we would have those, you know, go to lunch before you started a case and try to figure out how you were going to approach it. But it was definitely on an informal basis. Which sounds so different from what we do now with coaches and a more formal pre-brief, but also just a world away from what you must have been used to in litigation. So absolutely. So how did like when when you did start getting cases and you were having these experiences with quote unquote opposing counsel, how did that change your experience of litigation? It made it really difficult because I think I'd, I'd have to figure out which hat do I put on today? Which kind of a case is this? And not that I was ever a cutthroat type litigator or someone who I didn't lie. I didn't, you know, present falsehoods just to get to win for my client, but, but I thought I was a pretty good advocate and it's a different style. You know, that, that what you're doing is that I'm really working with my clients behind the scenes before we get into that collaborative meeting. So they're empowered to be able to speak for themselves and to start those conversations with their soon to be former spouse. Um, we leave them in better place. I mean, it, I think that's, you know, one of the things that was really made me disillusioned with litigation was that you have this case and you you fight hard for your client. And whether you have a trial or you settle it at the last minute, you you get that final approval and you look at your client and say, okay, fine, you know, we're done. I'll send you my final invoice. And then they're, they're left holding the bag and that they've got to figure out how to co-parent if they've got children. They've got to figure out how to be respectful to this spouse. And they they haven't really been asked to have any conversations with them. Right. They haven't um, been taught how to decision make as no. a co-parent at all. So, I mean, it, it's challenging enough to parent children and, and to then ask people who are getting divorced for whatever reason it might be to then be the best co-parents in the world afterwards is really hard. Mm-hmm. So so I think these conversations in a collaborative setting really help and, and get them in a better place at the end of it. I do find, and that was something anecdotally that I saw with my own cases, was that my collaborative clients were not coming back to me as often. You know, they might call with a question here or there, but it wasn't like, you know, you don't get the contempts, you know, that that mechanism where mm-hmm. if someone's not abiding by the agreement, they're running into court to to get it enforced. That just I, I haven't seen it happen in my collaborative cases. I think they end up in a better place. I really want to echo that because I think it's true in my experience as well. And I would love to know the statistics on this. Like I'd love to do some polling mm-hmm. and find out because I think my collaborative cases I can think of maybe two that later, um, never, I've never had a contempt after a collaborative case, but I've had people call about modifications and, and some that had been somewhat anticipated, 
You know, we kind of knew like maybe the kids were really little at the time of the divorce. Yeah, I've, I've had a couple of those and and I've had to refer them to other people because they ended up for one reason or another not being able to proceed collaboratively. But it's been rare, really rare. What about you, Jen? I have not had, to the best of my knowledge, either through mediation or collaborative contempts that happened. I was just thinking it'd be really an interesting project for like some law students or something to do to go and pull a whole bunch of 1As over a period of time from years and years ago and look at how many of them came back to court. Because I, I bet that data doesn't exist, but I bet it's for a contempt, at least. For modifications, that is different for the reasons you were just saying, Patrice, that sometimes people have a lot of reasons why they're going back for modifications. And just because they have a new modification doesn't mean it was contentious. But I bet it's pretty low, the amount of folks who come into court with a 1A, a full agreement obtained through either mediation or the collaborative process and end up with a contempt later. And just to clarify for our listeners, a a 1A in Massachusetts refers to a divorce that is decided without the benefit of or the interference of a judge. And no papers are filed with the court until a full agreement is reached either through informal negotiation, mediation, collaborative law, and then everything's filed with the court at the very end. And if it's approved by a judge, it becomes the judgment. And those are seen differently by the court. But we're we're talking now about like what so what happens after that's approved by the judge? Are there problems later? And yeah, I'm not, I don't see it. I don't see it in my collaborative cases. And I, I can't think of any mediations that have ever ended up with a contempt action to enforce the agreement one party against the other. So Susan, I'm curious at what point, so at what point did you do the mediation training? It was just a couple of years after I did the collaborative training. So it was a good, I mean, I'm talking back, what did I do? Collaborative training 20, 21 years ago, something like that. It's been a long time. Sounding terribly old. Um, <laughs> but it was early on in my litigation career that I realized that I really didn't enjoy litigation. I mean, I, although I do have to be honest, when I'm in an actual trial, it can be fun. You know, I think that, you know, that you put on a different persona and asking questions and all that is, is, is aside from what it's doing to the clients, is a rewarding experience to be able to to get that across. But yeah, for all of us, there's some reason we went to law school and there's some right. competitive nature in us. There is. I mean, as much as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not a very adversarial person that I don't like conflict, but there had to be something that drove mm-hmm. me to this. I like solving problems. And I think that may be the better answer for why I wanted to do this and why I wanted to do this kind of law, that if we help people, you know, that we're just facilitating them solving their own problem. You know, you think about the whole concept of, here we are presenting all of this information to a judge who does the very best job they can, given the limited amount of time. They barely meet these people. And, you know, what if they're having a bad day that day? And, the, you know, everything, you know, in a perfect storm, they can can come up with a wonderful decision. But each of our clients are unique. Their families are unique and they they deserve their own unique solution. And I think they're in the best place to do it. So it was a real change. And I, I actually had a hard time when I was litigating and doing this because I was changing my the way I approached it so much. So I knew, always knew I wanted to have a non-litigation practice, you know, that I would do mediation, I would do collaborative practice, I would do things like prenuptial agreements, I'll write those kinds of contracts. Um, and I am so much happier now that that's what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's yeah. a much more rewarding type of practice to me. 
Yeah, I want to hear more about that because I, I, I was afraid to give up. I, I remember thinking when I first did the collaborative training, like, oh, if, if all I did was this, I'd be, I'd be happier in my job. I'd have more job satisfaction if I didn't have to litigate. And then I happened to have a case that went to trial that was deeply satisfying because there wasn't another way to solve that one. Mm-hmm. There wasn't, it couldn't, be mediated. It couldn't, for reasons I just won't go into, but it it was a very, it was a case that had to be litigated. It had to go to trial. And it was just deeply satisfying because of the result and the way that it impacted the family. It was a positive result, frankly. And you do feel as a professional, like I used all of my skills, you know, I mean, I used all these things I'd worked so hard to develop and I got to see it actually work. Well, that's rare. <laughs> you know, it's just rare. And so I, I, but, but afterwards I thought, well, maybe I don't want to stop litigating. Maybe I want to leave the door open, but I think I ran into the same thing you're talking about. It becomes difficult to know what lane you're in. Like if I'm thinking as a problem solver, dispute resolution professional, it's different than strategizing for court, frankly. And it's a different, your office has to run in a different way. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I do feel like I'm calmer that there's, there's a much better sense that I've got control over my own schedule. I've got control over, I'm using skill sets, you know, speaking of that, I told you that I, I came from a healthcare and, and education background. I have a master's in education. I feel like now that when I'm working with my collaborative clients, I'm using that too, because I'm I'm working on that educational piece. And, and in mediation, it's more of an information thing, you know, but I, but I'm, that's still education it still is so so i like to draw back on that i always enjoyed that part of it but i feel like if they walk out the door better understanding what they're doing i mean most of our clients quite frankly have never been through this before or anything like it or anything like it and they often feel at a loss and i i find so many clients apologize for that oh i don't understand you know how this works so you shouldn't this isn't your field you know it's something that i'm here to try to help you with and to help you get through this process so it's it is more rewarding that way. Yeah, and it is more you're right. It there is much more of an educational component to the work that you do now. And I can really see that just in in having worked with you in different capacities and doing volunteer work with the Mass Collaborative Law Council, I can really see that the education training comes through. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to just circle back like I cuz I've also you mentioned just being able to control your schedule. Mm-hmm. And that's a life quality kind of it, issue, isn't it? It is. I mean, it, I've always looked for balance in my life. I think, you know, when I told you I left the corporate world because I was looking for a different balance with my children, my children along since grown up. So I don't need that, but I felt like I needed it in my life. You need to be able to devote time to your own family, you know, to other types of relationships or friends you've got out there. And, and just, I think that we all can come to a table and do our work better if we have balance in our own life. At least I in my agree. Opinion. It's been something I was always looking for, and I feel like this is something I can can certainly offer. You know, my best self is coming to the table. Yes. What have the challenges been like in leaving, or have have you have you had any roadblocks or or challenges in completely leaving litigation? It, it was scary. I mean, I think it wasn't really a roadblock, but I was afraid. How am I going to get clients? You know, how am I going to make sure that people are out there? Because oftentimes people will call, know that they want a divorce and don't really know how to approach it and assume they have to litigate. So Mm -hmm. 
my fear was I'm going to miss some of those people. If I have this new website and all of my connections with dispute resolution, is someone really going to find me? But it's worked out. I mean, I, I think keeping your professional organizations up, up to date and that you're involved is a big thing. Um, I think, you know, getting yourself out there. And then a lot of, you know, there's a lot of word of mouth with clients too. You know, and I think that does help. I've had people call me when they say, oh, I read your website. I love it. I love how you talk about, you know, whether it's preserving dignity or empowering people or being respectful and really working towards resolution. It really speaks to a lot of clients. So I guess that that scared type of um, place I was in that I wasn't going to get clients kind of went away when it it just evolves. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I like, I mean, I just have to come back to the the control over schedule can't be overstated because it's something when you're a litigator, you don't, you know, you open the mail and you find out <laughs> what's in your future. <laughs> like you're going to go to court on this day or that day, or you're going to have to respond to the motion on this day or that day. And without that, without that external force, we, the three of us, I know, get to really have control over when we work and who we work with and what our workday looks like. Yeah, and I think it even goes beyond that. I think, you know, thinking about the few times I've had court appearances coincide with, let's say, a vacation or something like that. Emergencies happen and you think you're going to, you know, last year I was on vacation and I had a virtual hearing So I was thinking like, okay, so an hour of my vacation is going to be spent on this matter. And inevitably, as I'm sure you've both experienced, like things happen in the days leading up to a hearing, even an uncontested hearing. And all of a sudden, you're spending many, many more hours on your vacation. And if your whole workload is that sort of litigation, emergencies are going to happen. Like you, you cannot find peace for yourself. And time to recharge to be your best self, as you were saying earlier, Susan, when you're in that constant chaos and just constantly in fight or flight mode for your clients, trying to figure out where you need to be, what they need, how to accomplish it. And so I think most likely, I think if we pulled a whole bunch of litigators and a whole bunch of -of out-of-court practitioners, we're going to find a big difference in mental health as well. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking about vacation, when I was litigating exclusively, I'd go on vacation and for a week or two before vacation, you're in vacation prep mode. You're trying to prepare to be gone and get things done, get things caught up and make sure you're leaving things in a good place for whoever in your office is going to be covering that. And then then I would be gone. I'm taking a week off. So I have to prepare a week or two in advance to be able to take that week off. The first few days of the vacation, I'm trying to calm down and mm-hmm. I'm still checking email and I'm still think I, I'm still on, right? And so I would finally get a few days kind of relaxed at the end and then come back and have to put out all the fires that started while I was gone. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, year after year, would take a week off in the summer and come back and think, was it worth it? It was so hard to take that week off. And I, it just never seemed worth it. And now I can, now I go away and I'm like, I'm really gone. Like it's from the first minute I'm on vacation. It's a totally different way to be. So now Susan, your practice is a hundred percent out of court. It is. It's 100% out of court. I do, do as I said, the collaborative practice. I do mediation and I do prenuptial agreements and, and the like. You know, it, it, and I, one thing I probably should say, too, it's not that every meeting is 
smooth and you know everything's kumbaya or, or whatever it might be if people are thinking that there still are they're very challenging meetings but i think there's such a difference in how we approach them and how the clients are able to interact and to have those difficult conversations in a, a nice controlled environment but it's still i think it's better for all of us it's not you know i i mentioned about you know throwing the swords across the table that's what the mindset tends to be in having settlement conferences and litigation i think it's just it's so different that this constructive approach is better for everyone, for the client's well-being as well as ours. You know, I, I used to laugh and say that when I would make a phone call in in hotly litigated cases, I would get a pit in my stomach before I made the phone call. I don't do that when I'm calling another collaborative professional about a case. It's even if we have to have a hard conversation, it is very different. It's something I I sometimes you're absolutely right, and I sometimes forget what it used to be like, and I just recently have had situations where I had to contact attorneys. I had something happen just a couple of weeks ago and I had to contact somebody to say, oh, I forgot. I, there was something I forgot to do that I said I was going to do. And I had this flash of like years ago, how hard it would be to have that communication with an attorney. Mm-hmm. And this was somebody that I know and trust and work with pretty regularly. And I like, it was nothing. It was nothing mm-hmm. to reach out to this person and say, oh, sorry about that. Here's Here's what you mm-hmm. asked for. It was just completely... I don't know. Uneventful. <laughs> I used to shut my office door so that I wouldn't disturb other people because I knew I'd be yelling or at least raising yeah. my voice a little bit. And that doesn't happen. I think we generally, as a group, respect each other's humanity and respect each other's boundaries in a whole different way right. and are much more forgiving of those sort of human mistakes. It's like, oh, this got away from me. I'm so sorry about that. Let's get back right. on track. Absolutely. Yeah, I can't say enough for the the dispute resolution community here is I like doing this in Massachusetts because it's like small enough mm-hmm. to get to really get to know people, but mm-hmm. big enough to be interesting and a little diverse, um, <laughs> something we're working on. But I mean, I've met the two of you through this community and so many other people that are real benefits to my my professional life. And it was one, you know, positive thing of, you know, not that there's anything positive about the pandemic, but I think during that process that we really did get to expand statewide and to really meet people in areas that weren't right next door to us and to yeah. be able to develop relationships and to work with them and and become good professional colleagues so that we can work cases together. So I think even just the fact that we'll say part of how I survived the pandemic mm-hmm. was meeting up with my colleagues online to get through it is unique to this community and this type of work. I don't know any litigators that did that. <laughs> so, but and, and we were there to help solve problems for clients too, because with, with how that all happened, there was an influx of, of folks who wanted dispute resolution because they wanted to resolve their issues when they couldn't get into court as quickly as they used to be able to do it. So yeah, it was helpful anyway. Better way to practice. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Susan, for joining us and sharing a bit about your evolution away from litigation and in, into this world this, we live in. <laughs> the world we live in, yeah. No, and I, I, so I thank appreciate you both, that you joined us today. No, and I appreciate both of you. You know, it's 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 been an interesting conversation to have, and I appreciate you asking me to to come have it with you here today. Well, we hope you'll come back because there are bits of this conversation that I would like to go deeper into another time and hear more about. But for now, we'll keep talking. Great. Well, thank you.